Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show. That's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. This episode is part of the Wings Over Australia sub-series. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Wings Over Australia segment, James Kitely. And we're here at Tomorrow with the Chief Engineer here, Andy Bishop. Hi, Andy. Okay. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your, your role here and what you do? Yes, yeah, so I'm the Chief Engineer here at Tomorrow Aviation Museum. And uh, our role here is to, um, to maintain the, um, the museum's collection of, of aeroplanes in an um, airworthy condition. Right, right. And what uh, you know, what does that involve? There's quite a collection here, isn't 
Yeah, it, it is a pretty diverse collection of, of airplanes uh, spanning from um, you know, Tiger Moth and Tiger Moth era aircraft uh, through to you know, fully powered flight control aircraft in the form of Sabres. So um, yeah, it, it, is a, it is a fair collection to maintain. So to be uh, responsible for that kind of a collection, you must have an inter interesting background in, in uh, you know, aircraft engineering? Yeah, always um, from a you know, very young age as a kid, always interested in, in engineering and what makes things work and go. Um, did a aircraft maintenance engineering apprenticeship in uh, general aviation at, um, at Camden Airport and uh, we're very fortunate um, to uh, be exposed to a, a wide range of, of aeroplanes during my apprenticeship. Uh, but, but from that I um, always knew that I wanted to you know, venture into the, the warbird, the historic side of things. So uh, soon after I completed my apprenticeship I, uh, I applied for a, a job at Tamora Aviation Museum that was advertised in the Australian. And um, yeah, I got it. Um, it sort of shocked me a bit because you were I, I was very surprised <laughs> um, because I, um, I I really didn't didn't know what um, I had that um, Tamora Aviation Museum would be interested in as a um, uh, as a kid, uh, sort of uh, 23 years of age, uh, okay. just coming out of my apprenticeship. I um, I had a, uh, a basic airframe uh, maintenance engineer's license, yep. and um, yeah, there I was applying for a job uh, in tomorrow. So um, yeah, it, it did shock me <laughs> that I I, um, I got the job a bit, and thought, oh geez, now I've got to move four hours away. But anyway, um, yeah, did did all that, and uh, been here at the museum. Um, just over, scary, over, scary number of years. Yeah, now. over eleven years now. Um, initially uh, working under uh, Chief Engineer Peter Pring Chambler uh, for um, probably eight or nine of those years um, before um, before taking over. So very fortunate in um, in being able to be um, sort of brought up within the the organisation and um, under the the guidance of Pete, which um, was just fabulous. Um, so it's been a fairly easy transition because of that. Just to chip in there, for those that don't know of Pete, um, a, lot of, a lot of people in Australia do, but um, ex-Royal Australian Navy, yes. and which is unusual, um, and this and a very, very experienced guy, and also um, uh, Martin Baker, um, trained on, on uh, Martin Baker seats and so on, so quite a diverse uh, experience. But again, one of the things is that tomorrow is a unique setup, isn't it? There's, there's uh, nowhere else like it in Australia and um, very few parallels overseas. Um, and a very big demand, as you're just saying, on the, the variety of aircraft. So you must have had to, a lot of areas to learn and add to your your licences and so on. Yeah, that's that's right. But it, you know, when you're really only maintaining a fleet of you know, ten or twelve aeroplanes for the last uh, you know, ten or twelve years, yes. um, it, it, it is quite a um, an achievable. Uh, Outcome to be able to. It's been a stable collection really for most of that time, hasn't it? You've it has, um, but the the depth and scope of, of what we do um, 
changes yep. know, when we decide to take on the, the restoration of the of the RAF's uh, sabre. Uh, that you know, changed what we so were used to. That know. was a very, very, un- was a unique, again, a unique, uh, challenging task. I think it's probably well known, but certainly it was, it was a bigger and more complex task than I think anybody really expected for that, it. That, that's right. And, and for us, you know, we're venturing into fully powered flight controls yeah. and that sort of thing, which, you know, although, yes, we do have a diverse collection, that the technology yeah. um, was still fairly simple technology, but once you step into the... Um, the Australian Sabre. Yeah, it's got a high pressure stuff going on. <laughs> yeah, all the rest of it, yeah. For, so from an engineering standpoint, um, which of the aircraft on a day-to-day basis poses the biggest challenge uh, to keep it keep it running? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say any of them present more real challenge than, than another. Um, certainly the, the advanced aeroplanes, in particular the Sabre, they're more labour-intensive, but as for you know, challenging, um, you know, getting a good fabric finish, you know, on a Tiger Moth can be <laughs> just as challenging as trying to overhaul a you know hydraulic component for a Sabre. So they all um, they all present their challenges, um, and we just tackle each challenge as it comes. Do you do everything in house, or do you um, contract out some of the some of the work on this aircraft? We're fortunate that the museum is sort of taken the, the standpoint that we will try uh, as far as practicable to, to do things in-house. Okay. Um, a lot of our aeroplanes are really orphan aeroplanes, um, so things like Rolls-Royce Derwents and Avons and Goblins and these sorts of gas turbine engines, it's not as though there's organisations set up around the world to do the work on these engines. So. When when they need overhauling or um, inspection, um, we're faced with farming them out to a third party to do the work, and they're going to have to tool up and put their head in the books and you know, mm-hmm. yep. charge us shop rates, yep. uh, which you know it's going to end up with very big numbers. Or we just tool up ourselves um, and knuckle down and um, and do it for wages. So. Um, we're very fortunate that, that the museum you know, takes that view that you know, we'll just knuckle down and, and do it ourselves. But also by doing that, we keep the corporate knowledge and yeah. we keep the tooling. Um, when we've got an issue with an engine, you know, the guys know what is wrong with it because they built it. You know, yeah. um, where, whereas if we had just farmed it out to a, you know, a third party. You'd be like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, yeah. we've got to learn about this. Is, so it, is it actually meant to be doing that, even th- almost? That, that's yeah. right. Yeah. So um, we're fortunate that you know we um, we do have that depth of knowledge amongst the, the engineering team, and um, you know we can we can tackle all these problems with confidence. Absolutely. I'm just going to say, and, and over the, the years you've been here and the years I've been visiting the museum, it's ten years now. Um, you've built up a lot of that knowledge, but it, and it just gives the impression of a very stable organisation. You've got some very good people working. You've got a great volunteer force. We were just commentating, commenting yesterday that one of the things we were both, Dave and I, were both really impressed with is your volunteers and their public, you know, helping. It was terrific, really well done. Um, but you know, you, you just ringmastering and making sure everything happened right yesterday. There was a lot of um, lot of aircraft moving around, a lot of 
Um, you know, these are a lot of them are World War Two aeroplanes. They 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 can be a bit prima donna ballerina about mm. things, can't they? They can. Yeah, very fortunate with the the, the people we have working for us. Um, just just lucky we've got guys that that share the same passion, um, and we've managed to um to have very good staff retention, uh, which which is key to that stability and that. Um, that retention of knowledge. Uh, so, uh, you know, the core group of five of us um, make up the, the engineering team, and um, you know, of that, um, most of them, you know, would have been here for probably averaging eight years, you know, or more. Uh, so, we are capturing um, that um, that corporate knowledge, and um, that gives us a great, you know, base to troubleshoot things. And again, it's perhaps worth things. mentioning here that, you know, during World War Two, you'd probably have an aircraft type in service for one to two years, top sort of thing, and, you know, sometimes serve throughout the war trainers, obviously Tigers were in at the beginning and Tiger Moths at the end, but, um, you know, the, the level of knowledge required to operate them for decades is a different kind of thing, isn't it? And that's right, and and also with the, the fairly low uh, utilisation that a museum aeroplane gets, um, the the types of maintenance um, they require and and the, the squawks they come up with are, are, are quite different to what they saw in service. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a matter of you know, constantly learning. Constantly yeah. Again, thinking. For, for people not so knowledgeable like you are about aviation technology history or like you know Dave and myself reporting on it. Um, it, it's easy to forget that we're, we're operating aircraft well beyond what they're ever designed to do. That doesn't mean they're unsafe. That's not the case, and we wouldn't be you wouldn't be operating, and other people wouldn't be operating them. But you're encountering questions and challenges that the designers never conceived but, of. You know, metal parts that would not expect to be working 60, 70 years later. That is just so true. Yeah, Th these aeroplanes were designed for a job. Yeah, yeah. A, a lot of them weren't designed to be maintained. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they just maintenance was not a consideration when they built these aeroplanes and um, you know when you dive into the accessory section of, of the boomerang or something like that it is very apparent that yeah they never thought about this because no, right. <laughs> um, the Japanese were coming in they needed that, to get it, that the is built. right yeah. and so um, you know when you maintain them you, you do have to have a appreciation for, for how and why they sometimes are a real pain to work on. Yeah, yeah. And well, I was just one of my questions I was going to ask you is I, I'm sure you've been upside down in all of these aeroplanes and mm. I'm sure you shed, you have shed blood in all of oh. these aircraft. <laughs> oh. It's kind of like a watermark of engineering. It, 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 it is. Um, yeah. It's, it's well, a part okay. of the job. Yeah. It, it is, it is. And of course, after a hard day's maintaining aeroplanes, what you want to do is go and restore your own aircraft. Yeah, suck at the punishment. <laughs> exactly. Tell us a bit about your aeroplane, because that's an interesting story. Yeah, I've got a um, very much a project, but uh, a 1939 Fairchild 24 R9, so um, the uh, Fairchild Ranger powered Fairchild. So um, people would know that as an Argus in um, military service, is that yes, right? Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. So this aeroplane, I especially like because it it came into Australia when it was brand new in 1939, yep. imported to um, for for a bloke Bert Bond in uh, in South Australia, and uh, yeah, he used it to complement his his bus services over oh, okay. in, in South Australia. It um, 
it was written off in 71 or 2, just not too far from here, sort of between Griffith and, and Wagga. Oh, right, yeah. And um, floated around quite a few people before I um, foolishly took it on. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. I remember I, the photographs of the excited uh, engineer. Yeah, with no, his... and uh, I, I still am very excited by it. And um, strangely enough, um, after work here, and um, everything's all settled down at home. I, I still do really enjoy going over to the hangar and um, and tinkering away on it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a bit, bit, bit strange, but yeah, I do <laughs> do enjoy it. it. It's just nice being able to just you know just do it at your own pace. And, yeah, it's and your own, it's your own it project, isn't it? And and there is a difference it. between doing that. Um, for those that aren't familiar, and correct me if I get this wrong, but it's steel tube, fuselage, and uh, fabric covering. Uh, what's the yes. wind made from? Yeah, all wood. All wood and wind, yep. yeah. And so you've got to have all the skills. Planes. Yeah, it covers all the food groups. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So that's a, yeah, one, one to keep you out of trouble if, <laughs> if you were going to get into it. So, yeah, it, it's a fairly long-term project. I, yeah. I would hope that, you know, sort of 10 or 12 years, it's, it's sort of flying, but... Yeah, it doesn't and a, matter. And of course, the other thing is you can fly it. Um, yeah. So yeah. did did you do a PPA? Well, how did you how did you learn to fly? Yeah. Well, leaving leaving school, I um, I, I grew up on third generation um, uh, pilot in the family. Um, I didn't really know whether I wanted to go commercial flying or um, right. or engineering. Um, as a kid growing up. Um, my dad flew for Qantas and uh, doing long haul, so I I knew that lifestyle. Yeah, and um, and the shortcomings, <laughs> and that sort of put me off. Yes, um, yes. But I, I still, you know, really enjoyed the you know being around aeroplanes. So I thought, well, I'll do my apprenticeship, and I was very fortunate to to get a aircraft maintenance engineering apprenticeship because there's not many no. of them yeah. available. Yeah, tragically. Um, but at the same time as doing my apprenticeship, I uh, I also learned to fly. So I thought I'll keep both avenues open, and um, I'll see which one I I like. So I um I did my GFPT, and um, at that point, you know, went and did you know, you know aerobatic endorsements and right. start doing formation endorsements and that sort of thing, and uh, and then thought oh, I really should do my PPL, but. <laughs> Yep. So I went and did my PPL, and I I learnt very quickly that um, what I call long haul, so yeah. doing navs of yeah know, an hour and a half or something, was not for me. It just <laughs> bored me to tears. Right. You, you take off, set a heading, and yeah, you're in you're in a you're in a mobile office with really. <laughs> this is boring. Yeah. So um I uh, uh it was great because I learnt there that. Yeah. Um, the the idea of uh, of commercial flying or you know really flying for for a career was not the type of flying that that I enjoyed. Yeah. Yep. Um, so um, yeah, stuck with the engineering. But that, that's a. I mean, um, I can think of quite a few uh, contacts of mine and friends who have both uh, display flying and, and and engineering on vintage aircraft, which is a specialised area in both of those those fields. And I've always felt that you know if you if you like you just said about your colleagues and no doubt yourself if you've reassembled that engine and you're flying the aircraft with the engine and there's an interesting noise you're going to have more of an idea of what that interesting noise is likely to be. Is yeah. that true? Oh, oh, definitely. Right. And I think you have greater mechanical 
empathy yeah. for, for yeah. what you're operating. Um, it it just adds a a, a diff, different sphere of, of knowledge. Well, there's a, there's a bit of a cliche in aviation, and of course, none of the pilots that we deal with would include be included in this group. But there is that thing about riding them hard and putting them away wet, where the yes. engineer has to clean up after them. Yeah. But no, obviously, you're not going to approach an aircraft like that because you know either you're doing it or even your colleagues are doing it, and you want to do it right. That, uh, that's right, and also what what we stand for here is preserving these aeroplanes for future yeah. generations. So everything we, we do and uh, how we approach maintenance, how we approach washing them, moving them, flying them, is all about sustainability. Yeah, that's uh, a very good and, word, yeah, um, in this context. You know, is what we're doing um, the, the best thing for the aeroplane long term? Because you know, it's not just about uh, us and getting that job done and getting it out the door um, or that pilot putting on a cracking display. It's about, right, well, if he keeps going like that, how's the fatigue index going to go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 true. It's, so it's going to numbers. Yeah, you're in conflict in a way between the design of the aeroplane. Like I said, a boomerang's a great example. And again, for people outside Australia, it was an aircraft adapted from a T6 family frame with a with a, basically a, a Beaufort or, um, or um, a C47 Dakota engine bolted on the front end. Much more complicated than that. Uh, rushed us through design by a, a chap called German Jew called Fred David. And um, uh, yeah, they, the Japanese were coming. They were convinced this was the only fighter we were going to have and they would have just made no time for maintenance or oh. simplifying the aircraft or even there's bits about the design I've seen and I've gone, that's just an odd mm. way of doing it. But obviously it was the easy, quick way for them then. Yep. And then you're looking now, you're taking the boomerang. We have, you have a boomerang in the collection, a beautifully restored one by Matt Denning originally. Um, and you're going, well, okay, um, what I do here has to be sustainable for decades. Again, I mean, you're looking decades ahead, aren't you? Which is just completely new um, element to, to the aeroplane because the designer didn't even think about no, that. The no. pilot didn't think yeah. about that. Yeah. 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 No one thought about it. So which aircraft in the collection do you regularly fly yourself? Uh, for the museum, I fly the Tiger, the Ryan, the Cessna 02. Uh, and the Wirraway. And you um, you also fly second with the Hudson, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. do a fair yeah. bit. Because the Hudson's a bit of an oddity in that it's a single pilot aeroplane but with always having someone else aboard. Pretty yeah, much. Is that right? it, it, it is. It's single pilot uh, aeroplane with two crews. <laughs> <laughs> Very, um, uh, the, the emergency gear extension, um, it is uh, out of reach of the pilot. So, um, in the event of a hydraulic or, or gear issue, um, you need a second person to go down the back and. It must be really hard to find someone who wants to fly in that. Yeah, I was very lucky to have a flight uh, uh, a few years ago. Now, thanks to the, co the collection's generosity and um, museum's generosity, and um, that was that was a terrific experience. So yeah, the the Hudson is a. A brilliant aeroplane. We had a long chat with uh, Stephen Deeth about that, but we'd love to have your impressions too, because it's, it's a big one on our both of our books. Tell us what you think of the Hudson. Well, I, yeah, I'm a I'm a sucker for Lockheeds. Um, <laughs> They're great aeroplanes. Lockheed build good aeroplanes. It's just as simple as that. Uh, they're just great. Yeah. They're a, a joy to to maintain. Um, they just seem to want to help you. Right, um, that's interesting. Know, where an English aeroplane just wants to fight you the whole <laughs> yes. way. You know, Lockheed's are just, they just seem to work. Um, our, our Lockheed, um, uh, well, it's shared amongst all engineering, but we, we, we all love it. Um, yeah. it. Unfortunately, 
is our trash hauler. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it's well, it's it lends, its, it lends yeah. itself very well to that job. Um, and um, so when we do deploy to air shows and that sort of thing, it's got all the supplies in it. So it does um, it does get taken for, for granted a little bit. And uh, recently um, we um, sort of amongst us decided, no, we've, we've got to got to look after this thing and, and bring it back up um, in in standard and appearance. So we've sort of spent the last last year planning and really the last sort of two months uh, working on it, getting the um, initially the Bombay doors operational again. Which is very exciting, yeah. Yeah. For, 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 I mean, not, it's, it, it's it very exciting for us. <laughs> We're in a room full of people who are excited by the Bombay doors. It, it, it is very um, exciting. Um, and... It's something that we've been playing and toying around with for, for a long, long time, and um, thankfully we um, we managed to convince the uh, the museum that it was a good idea and, yep. and worth investing in, and uh, so we, we got their support, and um, at that point we just set about making it happen. Um, so um, again, well, uh, Stephen, I think, said in his interview that he uh, he reckoned that when they did the doors, the first would be the first crew to have opened Bombay doors in a Hudson for well over half a century. It, it, it is quite true. an amazing thing, you know, when you're cruising along and think, all right, let's open those doors up, <laughs> um, to think, yeah, right, this really probably hasn't been done yeah. for mm. almost 70 years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, makes you think. It does, and it's part of the thing about what I love about museums is we're always moving ahead. There's always new things to do, and so on. And um, again, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I understand um, uh, from Jamie Croker at the, the War Memorial that you guys worked. Um, they're restoring a Hudson there. We're, we're hopefully seeing that soon um, as part of this tour. Um, but that uh, you shared some of the, the information and knowledge, and I think some parts uh, that were quite uh, some toolings or some castings. Yeah, we. We work in with, with Jamie and the, the War Memorial as much as um, we can. Yeah. Um, it, it's great uh, having uh, someone restoring a, a Hudson to unbelievable yes. the, the, the work um, and the quality of work that they are putting into that yeah. Hudson is breathtaking. Yeah. Uh, it, it is going to be a real credit to, to those guys. Um, nice to hear it from someone outside. I agree with it, you. I've uh, been watching them do it. It's it's great, um, and it, it's hard for us because you know we we maintain these things to be displayed and to be used. But you know, at heart, I would love to do what they're doing, but yeah. it's impractical. But that's but, a great thing, isn't it? It's great that we've got places like the well, when we're all doing static yes. restoration of that and that's and that aircraft is there it's great we you guys are doing that you know one of the reasons that dave's here today is because he wanted to see the hudson fly having yeah. all, so many <laughs> to see a hudson fly it's one of my desires so and, so know. to have both it's ends great. of the spectrum yeah, absolutely yeah. and, and it's so great. close it, it's yeah. brilliant yeah. It's great. Mean, we've, we've got some beautiful examples in museums at home but we'll never see one fly there i don't think so We'll never say never, but possibly yeah, that's right. not. Yeah, no, we, we learned that with mosquitoes, didn't we? we yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, that, and, and the Kiwis broke the ground there, and all credit to them for that. And and I, I think the thing is, yeah, really pleased to hear that you you know you guys uh, here at the museum and at the, at the memorial were able to work together and solve mutually solve problems or just spread that load of figuring yeah, and, it out together. Yeah, you know, share parts because yeah. you know, we've got parts that have come out of ours that for various reasons you know, we will never put back into ours. Yeah. And you know we've been able to, 
to gift them to the War Memorial yeah. to, to put into theirs or use as templates put in theirs yeah. and then they return them. It's, yeah. it's what keeps the Warbird industry going. It know. is. We, we sometimes in the game, you know, there's a bit where some people don't play so well with others and sometimes I find it frustrating as a journalist talking to people in different colours, countries restoring the same aeroplane and there's, a, you know, my, my toys, your yeah. toys. But it's good when people cooperate and everybody benefits that way, I think. Well, it's what needs to happen. Yeah, yeah it, it is just what needs to happen because it is coming increasingly challenging to, to keep these aeroplanes uh, flying and um, unless everyone shares the information, shares the parts, shares the knowledge, yeah. um, it's just going to get you know, really impossible and unnecessarily yeah. Um, yeah. difficult to maintain. And that's an interesting area because I mean um, we now have got 70 years of, of Merlin operations, taking example, that's something we've, we've talked about before. And then, you know, how you operate a Merlin today is, is very different from wartime. Um, and one of the things we noticed today, and particularly on Friday, is the spray bars you've got fitted with some aircraft, which is uh, not original and very vital on a 40 plus degree day. Yeah. How do you, well, the question probably would be how do you manage with a Spitfire designed to operate off English grass airfields in 20 degree temperatures tops? operating them here when we, you know, you're hitting 40 degrees and so on. Yeah, with with difficulty, but um, we, we did have some engine issues with, with the Spitz going back, oh, thankfully a number of years now, and uh, I, I was involved with the um, the build of the um, the engine we're, we're currently running it. Um, it was built by um, Vintage V12s, yep. uh, Jose and his boys in yep. Hatchby, and uh, Again, because of the, the thirst for knowledge, um, we're fortunate that we spent uh, over sort of two months uh, over in Tehachapi with with Jose um, right. building our engine. Right. So, um, so again, you were, you were almost you were contracting out, like you said earlier, but you were also capturing the knowledge by being there and doing it. That's the whole idea. Brilliant. Yep. Yeah. So um, I was there for the um, for the strip down. Yeah. and inspection and everything went out to its various places for NDT and refinishing and um, when it was all ready to, to assemble I went back for another sort of two months to um, to see it all go back together and, and walk through that process with them um, through you know full test running and um, putting it in the can ready to come back home. Uh, but um, from that and my, my time over there, um, it, it did really hammer home how delicate those those engines are. They're a, a beautifully engineered, robust engine. However, you know yeah. they they need to be treated uh, with with respect and operated very carefully. Uh, Within their design parameters, and uh, one of the the main issues uh, with with Merlins is temperature yep. and keeping that temperature under control. Yep. And uh, as you say, operating operating out here in the the Riverina, it gets very hot. <laughs> and um, and Spitfire, it's not exactly the best radiator design of any aeroplane. So we um, we decided that we we weren't going to to compromise reliability. Uh, yep. So when we, we came and put the engine in and, and did basically a, a firewall forward rebuild of the aeroplane, um, we, we did you know, 
pre-oiler mods. Um, so um, we, we can ensure that that camshaft doesn't run dry on a, start. A pre-oiler mod is a classic example of what we're talking about because you know they weren't worried at the time a, a Merlin on a Spitfire in World War Two would put up that that was never going to be an issue. Whereas now it's absolutely certain to be something you want to be avoiding problems with. It, it is. It is. So. Um, yeah, we, we fitted uh, an engine pre-oiler, engine uh, oil heaters, um, and uh, and also spray bars. So, yep. um, thankfully, um, we're, we're able to um, pull a lot of knowledge from Mike Nixon uh -huh. at yep. um, vintage um, yep. V12s, specialty engines, and uh, from his Reno experience. Um, with you know using spray bars and that sort of stuff, um, we're able to sort of determine what we were looking at in, in capacities and um, and water flows to, to to keep the engine cool. I mean, we're not we're not trying to push it hard. All we yeah. want to be able to do is taxi back without it getting <laughs> hot. Idiot, <laughs> I mean, yes. We're not we're not you know trying to do anything too special. We just don't want to cook it. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, very. As it turned out, a fairly um, a simple um, mod, uh, very unobtrusive uh, yep. to the aeroplane. We we're quite lucky in that our aeroplanes are a very original uh, yep. aeroplanes. The Mark Eight, you know, it's one of the few, I guess, completely yep. original aeroplanes. Uh, yep. And uh, so you're loath to um, go drill holes yes. <laughs> in all these beautifully part numbered and inspected <laughs> skins and uh, and bits of aeroplane. So we're able to install the whole system without without drilling a hole um, oh, great. in, in nice. any of the wings or yeah. um, airframe uh, so that you know, down the track it can always be preserved as, as yeah. a very original aeroplane. So we're, we're holding about uh, 20 litres in the, in the Mark 8 yep. and um, Flowing about uh, 3.2 litres a minute yep. of water to um, to either, or sorry, to both um, radiators, yep. and um, that uh, that allows us to um, to get temps. Yeah, we're looking at about 30 seconds to pull it from about 115, 118 degrees back down to you know 100, 105. Right, and uh, so with the 20 litres of capacity, yep. um, it, it gives us uh, plenty of, of cooling. So with the type of work we use these aeroplanes in, which is always, unfortunately, airshow work, yep. it's yep. a pretty harsh environment. Yep. Um, you know, the guys trying to fit in with, with displays and the rest, you know, they can be forced to sit on the ground, um, even operating you know, in and out of controlled airports, that sort of thing. Um, it, it is an unnecessary, well, but unfavourable thing, but they do have to sit on the ground at times and yeah. they do get very hot. Yeah. So being able to just flick a spray bar on and just keep everything under control, yeah. while yeah. it relaxes. Yeah. yeah. You relax as well. Yeah, I relax. Option yeah. Too, and um, it, it, it's, it really has changed um, how we can operate the aeroplane. Yeah. That's something that we probably wouldn't ever have to come up against in New Zealand because it doesn't really get as hot as it does here. And as we noticed over the weekend, <laughs> with the was 41 degrees or something on Friday, and I, I'm just amazed that you guys were still operating aircraft. But, yeah, um, you know, I've seen I've seen it get up to about um, close to 30 at Ardmore, and, and one of the Spitfires cooked. <laughs> yeah, well, it didn't it, yeah. fly, and um, yeah. and that's a that's a rare one-off sort of thing that happened, yeah. but. Um, 
you know, the, the whole air show itself as well, this, that must put a lot of extra pressure on you guys as a, as a team. It, it does, but it, it is what we do. Yeah, um, yeah we, we maintain all these aeroplanes, we do everything for these aeroplanes, but um, displaying them for, for the public is, is what we do. So yeah. we, we've got, again, the, the great team of guys that just take it in their stride. And, and perhaps the thing, going for the listeners who might not be so familiar, you, you run regular fly days uh, here, but um, this is the third uh, Warbirds Down Under show, which has so far been a, a every other year, and obviously we're hoping you continue it. I'm not putting you on the spot with any of that, just this is where we're coming from. And um, you've changed the, the, the flying, the other, other than the, the big air show, the flying regime over the years a bit. What's the current state of play for people who aren't familiar with the museum? Obviously they can look at the website, that you've yeah. got the current information on the that, that's right. Tomorrow website. So we... We do what we call aircraft showcase on the yep. first and third Saturday of the month. And what we try and do is fly about two or three uh, of the museum's collection, but usually you know, I've got to visit in one or two or three uh, aeroplanes uh, that, that come up and support us. So um, it, it's a bit, a bit different to, to standard um, Air shows that people would be familiar with. We um, we know that the, the air show environment, the typical air show environment, is fairly hard on on pilots, on aeroplanes, uh, on everyone really. Yeah. So being able to do aircraft showcase where we fly a, a reduced number of aeroplanes, um, it's uh, a lot lower stress. Uh, we um, we can take the time to um, Really care for the aeroplane, um, and basically every aeroplane gets about you know a half an hour slot to do its thing. Um, it gives us more time to you know, warm them up correctly, fly them correctly, cool them down in flight, bring them back, you know, and uh, really have a bit more of an intimate um, display of the aeroplane with the with the public. And, and post the flying, we we then open up the, the engineering hangar and um, bring the aeroplanes in and also the aeroplanes that we will have in the workshop getting work done and um, and rope up and allow people to, to come in and have a look at aircraft engineering because for most people these days I guess they assume that people maintain them but it's so removed from the public eye that they never get get to experience it yeah that's a very good point absolutely I think um, and one of the great things I love about what I get to do with guys like yourself is that it's about showing what what how these work how they're flown um, and it's real people who with real skills learn to, to doing these things but yeah it's, it's often a, a mystery I remember um, a little anecdote here when we had the box kite at the, um, the Centennial Military Aviation Show down at Point Cook and box kite was just sitting there in the hangar, technical hangar, exactly like you're saying, and we had people just coming and staring at it. And we couldn't figure out why they were staring at it. We realised after a while it was like a cutaway aeroplane because you could see where the control cable went from the stick to the elevators to the balancers, ailerons and normal aircraft. And uh, as you know probably better than most, if you take a couple of panels off, people are just fascinated, yeah. aren't they? Uh, no one has released a book yet of, <laughs> of an aeroplane of you know, profiles 
all nude. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> yeah, right. Just, to see all the bits yeah. and yeah. just how complicated these yeah. things are. You know, when you pull the side cows off, you know, later model spits and you just look at yeah. how much stuff they jammed in, in. Yeah. To, to such a small space. People yeah. go, well, yeah. yeah, right, this this yeah. is quite something. Yeah. Also, I think nowadays, and, and we're all old enough now not to be in this group, but you know, for a lot of young people today, their world is effectively a digital microchip world. And it's all a mystery because you don't know how a micro... There's nothing moving, you can't yeah. see it, what it does. Um, and you press buttons and the thing either works or it doesn't work. It's either... It's a, it's a binary state, isn't it? You yeah. know, it works or not. Whereas with the kind of machinery we're interested in and talking about here, they degrade, um, sometimes quite dramatically on occasion, but generally... We are on an airfield, as you, as you can tell. I think that's the Mustang going oh, off again, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, where, where um, you know, you can see you press this thing and that bit of wire pushes that thing over there. And I find that fascinating. Yeah, and I determine it's amazing how how many other people <laughs> find it fascinating when, when yeah. you when you see these people because um, you know aeroplanes are a bit of a mystery to everyone. Yeah. Um, unfortunately well I think the airlines work very hard to make it so you know you arrive at the airport you go through a tube into a tube which travels to another destination they're all very carefully panelled in plastic so you don't see anything moving or what, how it works um, and uh, that's a you know that's a keeping people quiet and calm and all of that sort of thing but um, again you go inside a Hercules or any military aircraft equivalent to an airliner it's all exposed because they want to see whether something's gone twang or has been hit um, so yeah it's great to see those things and it's very well received by the public. You know, we've got cutaway radials and section gas turbine engines, and they can look at it. And you can see the the puzzled look on their face. <laughs> and so I'll, I'll turn it over for you, and you'll you'll sort of get the picture. And you turn it over. Oh wow, that's, that's really fascinating. <laughs> I was is, thinking yeah. it was going to be like this, this, and this, and this yeah. really complicated um, yeah. picture they had in their head. But um, yeah, to, to be able to you know explain it and show it to people, um, they they really enjoy that. And that leads on to another question: is you know we touched on it before, and I know we're both passionate in our own ways about this. Is getting young people involved, getting young people to turn wrenches on aircraft. I mean, there's a lot of kids go, hey, I want to be a pilot, and that's great. Nothing wrong with that. Um, but we're going to run out of engineers long before we run out of pilots. So there's always going to be pilots available for the aeroplanes. Uh, and the, the difficulty is it, it just takes so long to to train a, an engineer up, especially on this this sort of uh, spectrum of, of aviation. Yeah. Um, it it's it's not something you know within four or five years that they can necessarily go and do. And I think, uh, again, not putting words in your mouth, but you can do your course as, as you did, and you were very lucky, as you said, to, to do the kind of course you did, but then you've got to get the practical experience, and there's a huge amount. It's like learning to drive, isn't it? You know, you get your licence and you think you know everything, but actually you're just starting. There's so much more to learn. Yeah, that, that, that is right. So we're, we're lucky here. We, um, we do put through... We always try and have a apprentice um, within the... The engineering team we've got um, Brendan at the moment who's our apprentice and he's just brilliant um, we um, have had him a year and almost uh, two years now and he's he just loves every bit of it he's learning to fly as well and um, it, it is great to be able to you know, put back yep. into your into your yep. industry and uh, especially with someone who who really appreciates it and gets well that's the thing uh, we were talking with a couple of other people in this series and um, 
uh, with the young people involved, you, you need to see the passion. And I think that's one of the reasons that the, the entry gates can be quite hard and high to get through, because once you've shown that you're going to get through that gate to get into the game, then the organisation can rely that they're gonna, you're going to commit to the organisation, to that learning, to being a player. Whereas if it was really easy, you know, hey, come and give it a, you know, a week's trial and see how you go, that would be great, but the dropout rate would be, you know, punishing, and you don't have the time and you don't have the, the bits to, to sacrifice uh, to hand uh, hand uh, people. That, that's a really good point. Yeah. Um, we don't have the parts. Yeah. Um, what we do here, um, we have to be so careful with, uh, because yeah. Well, some of the aircraft you've got are the only one flying, and as Dave's touched on with the Hudson, probably the only one flying for a long time if, if there's ever another one we all passionately hope there will be more I'm sure but there will be um, but uh, yeah and you you get that weird game of course with the parts chasing that you get to do is that you know there may be one of these left in the world of course once you've once you've repaired fixed or fettled that one you find a warehouse with 25 yep. that's, that's the way it goes and you just learn to roll with it yes, no, unfortunately it's no, not worth crying anymore no, it, is it you just go numb to the fact that yeah. as soon as you finish making this part one will show up that's yeah. right some, some guy dodders in and says I thought you might like one of these it just happens it does yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's terrific um, with the other people um, we've interviewed involved with museums we've asked them a, a fun curly question um, and that's really one thing that you would take away or share with everybody about the museum. Of, of one vehicle, one aircraft, one artifact, one thing. What would you? What would be your special pick here that you'd like to, to tell us about? Um, I, I particularly. I don't know. It's a it's tough just, question. It's just like, <laughs> uh, I, I do enjoy. Um, for, for me personally, it's the, the engineering involved yep, yep. in the aeroplanes that uh, I'm very interested in. The, the technological advancements that were made by Rolls-Royce um, in the war years, uh, I find right. absolutely fascinating. Um, when, not that we have them, but when you look at early marks of, of Merlins yep. uh. and um, what they um, what they finished with towards the end of of World War Two, through to the introduction of um, the, the first generation of gas turbine engines, which we're, we're fortunate to, yep. to operate here, yep. uh, to to look at the the engineering leaps that were made in such a short period of time, and how that allowed uh, aircraft development to, yeah. to change forever. Yep. I, I find that just. So yeah. what you'd like would be a kind of a, a, a meta Merlin that starts off as a, as a, as a series 1-1 one, one and then all the way through that shows all of those. That's a really, uh, I uh, love uh, that. And, <laughs> and, then, uh, and then into, you know, like Rolls-Royce Derwins. Yeah. And yeah. think that, you know, that technology led to that, that led to yeah. that, that yeah. led to that. And then, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we've got 3,500 pounds of thrust and we're yeah. doing it reliably, yes. um, effortlessly. Yeah, that's that's a really. I love that answer. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I've got one last question. We talked about the bomb bay doors on the Hudson. Are we going to see any bombs dropping out? <laughs> well, yeah. Unfortunately, we're not New Zealand. And, uh, <laughs> Casa, or America, where they drop pumpkins. <laughs> yeah, or, or have live guns in Mustangs. Yes, yes. Yeah, um, yeah. Australia's a bit. Bit different like that. Um, Bring it across to Tasman. Well, that's <laughs> right. I mean, we'd have to come we'll, across and support we'll a Wanaka one year. Yeah. We'll let your bombers come on. <laughs> that's <laughs> a very odd <laughs> concept. <laughs> yeah. It's a long way to go just to drop the bombs. <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> right. I guess they went further during World War Two, didn't yeah. they? Yeah. Um, 
we do we do have um, the the original um, bomb racks for for the Hudson. Right. Um, in a very much as found condition. Right. Uh, and we have one of the uh, a, a sample of the adapter plates that takes the whatever Mark One A bomb yeah. rack in, into the the Hudson fuselage. So um, yeah, with time, we're hopeful that. Um, we can we can fit it out with with all its bomb racks, and uh, I'm already in discussions with uh, another couple of museums trying to get some um, either some practice bombs or um, I found someone who's got the the mould uh, to to make fiberglass um, uh, bombs uh, that would uh, suit our aeroplane. So um, it, it's not. It's not uh, impossible. It's not unfeasible, but um, yeah, like, small a, steps. like a lot of aviation, it's more the paperwork and politics than the practicality, yes. isn't it? It could be done. And I think again, for listeners outside Australasia, you, 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 we don't like to. Um, uh, there are quite strict limits on what you can do here, stricter than some other parts of the world in, in certain ways. But um, I think the flip side is CASA does is supported some, you know, a lot of good developments. We do have an active and, and vibrant warbird community. Uh, absolutely, we. Um, I think we're actually very very fortunate yeah. in, in what we are allowed to do with these aeroplanes um, and and the practical approach we are allowed um, to to apply to maintaining them because uh, you know, we, we are operating very old aeroplanes where parts um, and consumables uh, aren't always available um, and we're, we're very fortunate that we are given uh, liberties to, to, to make practical decisions as engineers to, to keep these aeroplanes flying and you know without that practical approach yeah it, it wouldn't happen it, it would not happen yeah. uh, unfortunately and that's just a little comment there that you made which is I uh, we all look overseas and, and envy what other people are doing and so on but it's great that we're able to compare and certain countries have things we don't but we've got stuff like the Flying Hudson yet again that nobody else has. And the boomerang. I've been really impressed to see the boomerang <laughs> and hear the boomerang. I didn't the, know the, it sounded the, that good. The, the boomerang is a, a very impressive display aeroplane. Yeah. Um, the, the sound of it, it's, it's stature, it's... Yeah. It's a great aeroplane. Yeah. I mean, for, for us as Australians, there's a, there's a lot of history and heritage behind that, but I think on any basis, I'd love to love to send one over to, to Flying Legends, say, just so they could see what a great, as you said, what a great display aeroplane it is rather than It was else. interesting. When I was in um, Tachapi, um, Juan, one of these big Mexicans who was working on our engine, who we had very broken English but he knew Boomerang <laughs> because uh, you know, Sanders built um, the Boomerang for, for Guido and That's another right. one that stayed in in America. And uh, when I said, uh, you know, in the collection we had an original Boomerang, he, he knew immediately what a Boomerang was. And I thought, you know what? That's that is pretty impressive. That's very neat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think that's a that's a great position to finish on because we've we've stolen quite a lot of your time in a very busy environment. So we'd just like to say thank you very much, oh, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Great. Thanks. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.